Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, in the above entitled action, upon our oaths, do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, Michael and I want to give a shout-out to the veterinarians, vet techs, and other animal practice and animal hospital personnel who continue to travel to their offices to care for their furry and feathered patients. We also want to thank the manufacturing, factory, and warehouse personnel who are producing food, paper products, and drinks, along with countless other necessities, and getting those products to our local stores. Finally, we want to thank the mail carriers and postal personnel who report to work and keep our mail system running. Tonight, in Episode 8, State of Texas versus Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells was a drifter who murdered people in New York, Massachusetts, Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, and Texas between 1987 and 1999. On December 31, 1999, Sells entered the Harris home where he raped and murdered 13-year-old Katie Harris. Katie's friend, 10-year-old Crystal Searles, survived Sells' attempt to kill her, escaped the Harris trailer, summoned authorities, and identified her attacker. Sells was arrested on January 2, 2000, and subsequently convicted and sentenced to death. We'll talk about Sells' history and his confirmed murders, his attack on Katie and Crystal, arrest, trial, and direct appeal. Then we'll talk about the state and post and federal post-conviction claims Sells raised, including his belated Atkins claim alleging mental retardation. Finally, we'll talk about Sells' April 3rd, 2014 execution in Huntsville, Texas. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I'm definitely uh, glad to be here. And I want to echo that same sentiment, especially about the veterinarians. Uh, last week, actually, my new puppy uh, 
decided to eat a thumbtack, and uh, we have to take her to the vet and uh, make sure she's Oh, my. Dead. Luckily, she oh, was fine. Oh, poor baby. Yeah, luckily, she's fine, and she pooped it out, and everything's good, but a little bit of a few anxious moments there, and then... Uh, just want to mention that I uh, hope everybody, this is the first time live that we've played the new intro. So hopefully everybody's going to enjoy some new audio we got here tonight. And uh, definitely looking forward to the case. Yeah, well, this is a, this is a pretty interesting one. Um, sells as a piece of work, that's for sure. Um, I do want to add something I forgot to put on the intro. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of corporations, I know Budweiser, uh, a, a bourbon place in Kentucky, and L'Oreal, they've converted their manufacturing operations to produce hand sanitizer. Some other corporations have, have uh, started producing PPE equipment. And, yeah, I, you know, they really deserve person. acknowledgement for... I mean, not just in this. Budweiser's actually a pretty amazing period as far as the company goes because I've seen uh, people posting cans of Budweiser that was actually, like, it's water. And, like, when I think it was Katrina specifically was the instance I saw, yeah. Budweiser flipped to, you know, making water and, uh, you know... I. Gave those out. I think, I think that was um, also they did it. I think for Harvey. Okay. As well, Hurricane Harvey, in Texas in 2016. And then of course, I don't know if you saw the story. I know it was on our local news here about an old lady in a uh, nursing home who had a sign, and she went viral on Facebook. Said something about please send beer. And it had a she had and a course course. Man in her hand, and Coors ended up hooking her up with a bunch of beers. So, cheers yes, to Coors, Coors that hooked, well. hooked hooked me up with some beer. Yeah, yep. and I thought about doing that um, with Sky Vodka. Oh, you know, okay. going to my window and having somebody take a picture. <laughs> but I'm not. I, I'm, you know, I'm not in a. A, a care home in a lockdown situation, which most right. of the uh, care facilities had to do. Um, so I'm able to go out if I need vodka and get vodka. Speaking so, of, but I what's, saw some, the, uh, what's the weekly update on uh, possibly opening back up? I don't know if you saw, but our <laughs> governor uh, said that we're going to try to start the process on May 4th, even though our Cases are still going up exponentially every day. Um, well, our city mayor in New Orleans, which covers Orleans Parish, New Orleans, uh, she has extended the stay-at-home order for Orleans to May 16th. I think the curve is flattening out, but we still have a lot of cases and a lot of deaths. Well, and I know for sure, like, just looking, I've done some research on the process. 
the first step really isn't much different than what's going on right now. Basically, it's saying, you know, no more gatherings than 10 people, et cetera, et cetera. Step two is when you bounce up to 50 people. And then step three obviously completely blows the lid off of it. But, I mean... I'm kind of I'm kind of torn at this point. I'm like, man, I want this to be over, but at the same time, I see Dr. Fauci sitting there saying, if we do this too early, it could have catastrophic effects. So I mean, yes. Once you take the that lid is off, the concern. You can't put it back on. Right, that is the concern, and I think Governor Edwards is proposing a limited return. Um, at the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. He hasn't extended the stay-at-home order at this time. Uh, I think he's considering whether or not he's going to do that or not. There is some promising, like I said, there's some promising movement in the right direction. But there is concern that if we go back to regular operation then like you said the the increase is going to be exponential and the catastrophe is going to happen even though we had actually averted it well and one thing i will say is this uh you know as much as i'm criticizing the governors here in arkansas i will say this he did say that a lot of the new cases most of the new cases in fact, he said we're coming out of the Varner unit, uh, the prison here in Arkansas. So, I mean, that's Okay. Too. Okay. And Varner's actually where they hold the death row inmates. If you, I think you knew that, but... Yes, I knew that. Or wait, well, is Varner where they be... hold the death row inmates or where the death chamber is? It... It may be where the death chamber is, but I think the inmates were housed in Grady. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Is Varner? Yeah. I believe I confirmed to Varner 24 hours before their scheduled execution. Correct. Just like in Texas, uh, death row is at the Polunsky unit. And then they're transferred to Huntsville for the, where the death chamber is located, correct? So, That's still one thing I've always right. found interesting is what must be going through these people's mind as they're getting ready to step through that death chamber. Oh, who knows? Yeah. Uh, I. I think different people are going to react in different ways. Well, I've always said, though, but by that point, you're what, through years and years of appeal, I think you've probably come to terms with it. I don't know, because, you know, they seem to, they seem to hold out hope with appeal after appeal after appeal. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, we're getting um, and I think different people are going to react in different ways. You know, people, uh, some are going to fight and claim their innocence, and others are going to accept their responsibility for their 
for their actions and are going to, you know, go quietly. Absolutely. So, um, and I have an update on Rodney Reed. On April 17th, the state filed a supplemental authority letter with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal that basically uh, brought to their attention a case related to the statute of limitations on civil rights claims, which is one of the one of the issues in Reed's federal DNA uh, claim, or right. you know, civil rights claim related to denial of DNA testing. Okay. And then so, on the sixteenth, well, it, it, it's the next. Um, Reed has replied to the state's response brief. The next step is whether the Fifth Circuit's going to schedule oral argument or not. And right now, with COVID and the Fifth Circuit being in New Orleans, that's up in the air. Yeah, it's not like. And then also. Yeah, the the response, the state files its response to Reed's 10th state post-conviction writ in the Bastrop County Circuit Court, uh, District Court, rather, on April 16th. And that basically points out the problems with the new witnesses and the, the statements and their, you know, failure to come forward and Reed's failure to discover this information. Uh during his first, second, third, fourth, fifth, et cetera, writs. Okay, nice. So uh, there are hearings for that scheduled in September. They start on my birthday on September 14th. Uh, if they are online, I will try to get everybody a, a link on the page to where they can be watched live online or, or watched in archives. Okay. They'll, they'll go full day of hearings. And I think it's about two weeks are scheduled. Dang. So, right. Well, it depends on how many witnesses the defense brings and how many witnesses the state brings in to rebut. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. So, Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you ready to start talking about uh, Tommy Lynn sales? Absolutely, let's do it. Okay. All right, Sells was born in, uh, I believe, Oakland, yeah, Oakland, California, on June 28, 1964. He was a twin. He had a sister, fraternal twin sister named Tammy Jo. Uh, Tammy Jean, rather. Um, shortly after his birth, the family relocated to Missouri, where he was primarily raised. In December of 1965, Tammy Jean uh, contracted meningitis. And I believe Tommy also contracted meningitis either at the same time or shortly after Tammy Jean became symptomatic. Um, 
meningitis is a an infection in the brain or the spinal cord. Right. Uh, you have high fever, and Tommy and Tammy were 18 months old at the time. So it's very, very oh, dangerous. And, no whatsoever. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a horrible disease. It can result in loss of limbs, uh, severe brain damage, loss of eyesight. I mean, all kinds of uh, – even, even if you survive, you can have residual uh, problems as a result of the disease. Almost similar to COVID, like they're talking about now, except for, you know, obviously not the loss of limbs, but as far as the residual and lasting effects. Right. Um, Tammy Jean died, and Tommy recovered. And then at about age two, Tommy was sent to live with his mother's Aunt Bonnie. Uh, apparently, he lived there for three years between ages two and five. He was very happy at Aunt Bonnie's house. And when Aunt Bonnie talked about perhaps adopting him, Sel's mother took him back and wouldn't allow Bonnie to adopt him. Okay. Of course, this is kind of anecdotal. It's based on family lore and, and information from the families. I don't know whether it was ever confirmed with any documentation showing that, you know, Bonnie initiated the process or anything like that. But um, – and Sells did claim later that living with his Aunt Bonnie was one of the only bright spots in his entire life. By age seven – Tommy was chronic truant in school, and he began abusing alcohol. Um, he apparently, at age eight, befriended a man and began sleeping at his home, and the man was later identified as a pedophile who molested boys, including self. No charges were ever filed. None of this was ever reported at the time, but later, um, Sells and his family claimed that he was he was molested by this man. At age ten, Tommy began smoking ditchweed marijuana. Okay. Um, at age thirteen, he apparently crawled into bed naked with his grandmother. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, a lot of these are based on. Statements from the family, statements from cells, which may have been made at that time because it wasn't disclosed to his trial counsel, but may have been made later in habeas proceedings to try and get some benefit because cells was diagnosed as a sociopath or sociopathic personality. So, you know, you have to kind of take some of these things with a grain of salt. Right. Um, at a, about age 14, he had dropped out of school and he left St. Louis and started riding trains around the country and stealing. 
and then between 1977, he would come home. That's not pretty cool to ride around the country in the train. Just saying. Well, he only did it apparently. Um, okay, yeah, he he, but he had trouble at home. Uh, or at least some trouble at home. I don't know whether it was as bad right. as, as, like I said, he made out later. But yeah, he left home and started riding trains around the country. And it's interesting that at the age of 14, he was able to find jobs and money. Of course, he also stole in order to, and, and able to survive in a world full of predators. Um, you know, so, and this may be what, this may be what I found out today about cells, uh, but this is starting to sound a little bit similar to Edwards, except we can verify a lot of this information. Some of it we can, some of it we can't, because it came from cells. Uh, for example, he he claimed he committed his first murder in 1979 at the age of 15. Um when he saw a man molesting a child when he entered his house to rob him. Okay, now this is sounding really similar to Edwards now, except I think, didn't the detective say Edwards started at like 8 or something? It was something crazy. Yeah, yeah, it that was that was really crazy. Um, and then in, in 1980, at about age 16, uh, he claims to have killed a man with an ice pick near a Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles. And then in Oakland a few days later, he, he'd apparently gotten on the fair circuit and carnival circuit. He tangled in a gang-related fight in which he almost killed another man and was hurt himself. And apparently they did have some hospital records to uh, confirm the Oakland and the injuries that he sustained. But even um, if they have the he, hospital records, isn't that like on a newspaper? Don't they print some of that stuff? So like, it, it, couldn't it be possible that he freaking just saw a story and he was like, oh shit, I'm going to say I did this or something. You know what I'm saying? That, well, that's, you know, that is a, um, as far as the gang fight, I don't think he ever said anything about the murder in Los Angeles. The gang fight in Oakland, he may have gotten injured in some other way. He may have gotten injured burglarizing a place or trying to rob somebody. We don't know. But they at least did have the Oakland, you know, there was some documentation to partially corroborate what he said. Now, apparently, he went back after this incident, he did go back to... Uh, Missouri and then he moved in about 1982 to Arkansas there was a yeah Um, he also is believed to have killed Thomas and Colleen Gill or no Colleen Gill and her daughter Tiffany um, somewhere in Arkansas in about 1983. In, um, 
he burglarized a home near Little Rock, Arkansas, and shot the owner who lived there, but who survived. In 1984, he was arrested for stealing a car in Wyoming and convicted for auto theft and sentenced to two years in prison. In 1985, he was paroled from Wyoming, and then two months after he was paroled, he was convicted of felony theft in Missouri, so he served time there. Uh, He went into a rehab facility in July of 1985, Mm -hmm. and then he fled the rehab after being questioned by police about a car theft. He definitely does um, not uh he does not learn his lesson very easily. No, he doesn't. Uh in on July twenty sixth, nineteen eighty five, he killed Ina Court, who was thirty five and her four year old son Rory in Forsyth, Missouri. In October of that year his parole was revoked and he was sent back to prison. He was released again on parole. And apparently went right back because he was not finished serving his sentence and released from prison until 1986. Okay. Um, So uh, then there's an unconfirmed murder in 1986 in St. Louis. Um. Sells returned to prison on a parole violation in nineteen in October nineteen eighty six for driving while intoxicated. And apparently he was released. And in May of nineteen eighty seven, he murdered Suzanne Coors outside of a Niagara Falls bar. Um, she was missing. Was eight years before her body was found in nineteen ninety five. Um, there's a, an unconfirmed murder in October of 1987 near Winnemucca, Nevada, because, again, he's on the carnival circuit by this time. So he's okay. running the Ferris wheel, driving the Ferris wheel from town to town, and um, and putting it together and running it. And then in November of 1987, he met the Dardeen family in Ina, Illinois. Husband Keith, wife Ruby, who was pregnant at the time with the couple's daughter, uh, and their son Peter. The night of November 18, 1987, Sells entered the home. He shot and killed Russell. He shot and killed Keith and beat Ruby and then beat Peter. And when Ruby ended up giving birth prematurely, he beat the baby. And this is where we see the cold-blooded, brutal Tommy Lynn Sells. He killed Keith. Right. The husband. Then he raped and beat Ruby. Right. Um... Sometimes when a woman is injured, mm-hmm. it can spur a spontaneous 
birth. Okay, I got you. I got you now. Now I'm trying. And after being beaten, she prematurely gave birth to the couple's daughter, Casey. And Sells beat their three-year-old son, Peter, and Casey to death, in addition to killing Keith and Ruby. Damn, what a bastard. Yes. In September of 1988, uh, Sells murdered Melissa Ann Tremblay in Salem, New Hampshire. She was seen in a convenience store parking lot talking to a man that matched Sells' description before she disappeared, and her body was later discovered lying dead on a railroad track. Um, yeah. Uh, then there are several other murders over the course of several years, um, but they're not confirmed. He's confessed to them. To but authorities, but well, I guess Ed never confessed. But right, exactly. Um, he was never charged. So, and there are just a string. I mean, in 1988, a transient in Tucson, Arizona, um, arrested for assault, but released when the victim wouldn't file a complaint on Christmas Eve. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1989, claims he killed a, a prostitute in Truckee, Nevada, when the prostitute yeah. turned out to be a man rather than a woman. Uh, he claims in May of 89 to have killed two people in Oregon. And then in May of 1989, he was arrested for theft and spent 30 days in jail, but it doesn't say where. Um, in August of 89, he was charged with theft in Arkansas. And was released right. August 23rd, 1989. Then um, he went to Wyoming, he, right? he, uh, Yeah, then he went to Wyoming on January 12th, 1990. He stole a pickup truck to sell the tires to a young couple. Uh, he was arrested for public intoxication and convicted for stealing the pickup truck and served 16 months of a two-year sentence. And then in May of 1992, uh, in Charleston, West Virginia, Sells was standing by the road with a sign that said, we'll work for food. A young woman by the name of Fabian Witherspoon picked him up and brought him to her home and offered, offered him food and clothing. He repaid her by raping her and stabbing her. And then picking up a piano stool and beating her unconscious, but she survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was arrested shortly after that and was held in jail until June 24, 1993, when he was convicted of malicious wounding in Charleston. Okay. The rape charge was dropped, and he was sentenced to serve two to ten years. Damn. And he was in prison in West Virginia from June 24, 1993, until May of 1997. Now, is malicious wounding basically the same? Basically, an in-between step between assault and attempted murder. 
Well, in different different states are going to call it different states may call it different things. Um, you know, they they may have a degree of assault called malicious wounding that is more serious than just assault. Okay. Okay. Um, and different, like I said, different state statutes are going to word it in different ways. Okay. But it's it's kind of the same principle. It may be, you know, whereas in Louisiana, an assault where somebody's wounded may be first degree. Mm-hmm. Or where there's a weapon may be first degree. It just depends on the state. But in West Virginia, what he did was, uh, and malicious wounding may also be a lesser included offense to whatever he was actually charged with. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, in prison, he married a woman named Nora Price. And when he was paroled, he and Price moved to Tennessee. But Sells abandoned her frequently and set off on co- more cross-country travels. In October of 1997... Sells abducted and killed Stephanie Mahaney uh, in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, her body was found in a farm pond. He worked again. He went back in 97 to working for Carnivals as a Ferris wheel operator and truck driver. In 1998, in February, he met Jessica Levery, a mother of four, in Del Rio, Texas. On March 31st, 98, he moved in with Jessica. In April, Nora Price gave birth to Sells' son in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And the child was given up for adoption. He has a couple other kids out there that he never, he abandoned. So I didn't even say anything about them earlier. It just Um, seems like he's probably got more than a couple kids. Yeah. In 1998, he committed bigamy when he married Jessica Levery in Del Rio, even though he had never diver- divorced Nora Price. Um, then in April, on April 18, 1999, Sells abducted and strangled Mary Beatrice Perez, age nine, from a fair in San Antonio. It's called the Fiesta. Um her body was found near a drainage ditch and cells confessed to this crime as part of a plea bargain where death penalty was taken off the table. So he's convicted of, of Mary B. Perez's murder. Um, On May 13th, 1999, he raped and strangled Haley McCone in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. And then he was arrested on for public intoxication, but was released the next morning and left town. One of his self had that's another thing. Self had a variety of MOs and a variety of motives. Um, sometimes he would target young girls, right. sexually assault them and murder them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he would. Uh, Basically, I think intend to just rob people who saw him with this will work for food sign, 
but then it would escalate into rape and, and attempted murder or murder. Okay. So, and one of the things that he did was he would usually commit the crime and then leave town. And he was very, very meticulous about cleaning up crime scenes, removing any fingerprints that he might have left, taking anything that he didn't think he could adequately remove fingerprints from, Mm -hmm. and destroying them somewhere else. So he was very, um, a, a very not book smart person he was very street smart and very conniving and very cunning um, okay. in May of 1999 Sells was arrested in Madison Wisconsin for drunkenness and threatening people with a box cutter while in custody he assaulted another inmate and then he was released on June 24th. In July of 99, he abducted Bobby Lynn Wolford from a convenience store near Kingfisher, Oklahoma. Um, He claimed that he sodomized and shot her while she was trying to escape. And she was not found for four months. He was linked to that murder through a confession after his arrest in the murder we're getting ready to talk about and a pair of earrings that he removed from Bobby Lynn's body. Damn. Uh, He eventually returned to... Yeah. The setup for the actual murder is just... (laughs) I know we've been to You know, this is... This is cold-blooded, you know. The freaking, the freaking Michael Jordan of murderers. This guy has to be the LeBron James. Pretty much. I don't, like I said, I, I don't buy the whole Ed Edwards was the Michael Jordan of murderers. Right. Because as you and I have discussed, I, I don't, well, I don't think it's know. possible for Edwards oh, to have committed the murders as a an adolescent, nor do right. I think that he could have committed the murders as a senior citizen. Right. I think his sweet spot was those three murders in the late 1970s, early 80s mm-hmm. that he confessed to, that he was linked to by DNA, by on at least one of them, and that's it. All the others are just fantasy for somebody who I don't quite understand why he wants to go down that rabbit hole. True. So. I'm just um, seeing the major freaking you know, the correlation between the story of Ed and this. Yeah. And you know, he uh, sells is some law enforcement believe he was responsible for as many as 70 murders. And he confessed yeah, to something in the 20s. Towards the end of the show, but, I mean, it's crazy, some of the stuff that yeah. you're throwing out there. Yeah. So, um, 
he, like I said, he went back to Del Rio and, you know, moved back in with Jessica. Um, I don't know if she'd found out that she was in a bigamous marriage yet. On December 24th, 1999, Jessica kicked his ass out the house. And Sells went to stay with a couple he had met at church, uh, the Harris family, Terry Harris, his wife, and their children. And they took him in. Right. And he helped Terry fix an air conditioner or something in the house. Uh, But they, you know, they they took him in and gave him a place to stay when his wife didn't want him in the house. Right. I mean, Um, that's one of the things. It seems like what I'm getting from this, Lisa, it seems like the guy would pretty much... His M.O., and you didn't mention this earlier, but it seems like as far as a lot of his stuff, he would use you as long as you were convenient, and then he'd go ahead and kill you. Correct. That is exactly, uh, that's another thing. His motives were vi- were varied. Sometimes it was for sex. Sometimes it was for money. And sometimes it was probably that you ceased to be of any value to him because that's how sociopathic personalities work. On December 30th of 1999, Sells claimed responsibility for the murders of Danny and Kathy Freeman in Welch, Oklahoma. Um, Danny and Kathy were found dead in their burning mobile home. Their daughter Ashley and her friend Laura Bible have not been seen since. He claimed to have dumped their bodies near Red River, which is the border between Oklahoma and Texas. But when Texas Rangers took him to look for the bodies or show him show them where he left the bodies, uh, they didn't find anything. On the evening of December 30th, he met up with Terry Harris. They spoke, and Terry was going with Crystal Searle's dad to Kansas because the Searle's family was moving from Kansas to Texas. And um, so he knew Terry wasn't going to be in the home that night. Sells went out drinking at a bar. And he hounded the waitress at the bar repeatedly, wanting to have sex with her. Um, He even offered to pay her. She consistently told him no, and she told him she had a boyfriend she wasn't interested. At closing time, he left the bar, and he went to another location where there was beer in a fridge, I guess outside where he worked, and he started drinking beer there and apparently while he was drinking beer he got mad at Terry Harris Uh, Terry Harris apparently owed him $80 for a weed eater and in fact when they talked at the convenience store Terry said I'm going to Kansas but when I come back I've got your $80 I'll get it to you Um, Sells claimed 
and I believe this is entirely a false claim, that he mm-hmm. got mad because Terry Harris owed him $5,000 for some cocaine that sells fronted him. But it's interesting, in all these profiles and all this information, Sells has never said anything about dealing drugs. He used drugs and abused drugs, as evidenced right. by his several rehab admissions, but he's never said anything about dealing drugs. And, I mean, let's be honest, um, not all thieves are drug addicts, but, you know, I, I can make that right. I can make that jump by the fact that he's, you know, robbed people, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, and Terry Harris not only vigorously denied Sells' claim, but when the police searched the trailer after the murder, they did not find anything suggesting that Terry Harris was involved in drug use or uh, drug dealing. And specifically, they found absolutely no cocaine or any illicit drugs in the Harris trailer. Um, So Harris, uh, so Sells gets angry either over $80 or the imagined $5,000 that he thinks Terry Harris owes him. And that's pretty consistent, too, with a, a sociopathic personality. Um, so he goes to his trailer. He gets a knife from wherever he kept it outside, and he goes back to the Harris trailer. He goes around looking for a place to break in. The back door was locked. Uh, the windows he found were locked. The Harris's dog was in the front yard. It began barking, and so he went around to the front yard. He'd met the dog. The dog knew him. So he quieted the dog down. Did he quiet it? Or and did then he, he went back. No, no, no. He just pet. He just let it sniff his hand, petted a few times, probably talked to it for a second, and it recognized him, and it stopped oh, barking. Okay. Okay. So no, no, he didn't. The dog lived. Um. So. Thank Lord. He. He finally found an open window, which led into the bedroom of the Harris's older son, who was also blind. He went through the room. He looked into Katie's mother's room. She was sleeping there with her younger daughter. Then he went to Katie's room. Katie was in her room sleeping in bunk beds with Crystal Searles. I think Searle's siblings were also there. Um, I'm pretty sure Searle's siblings were also there. Uh, He may have looked into the room where the other Harris and Searle's children were sleeping. It's not really clear. Um, And then he went into Katie's room. He climbed into bed with Katie, cut off her underwear, and then attempted to rape her. Okay. Or sexually sexually assaulted her. She woke up. She jumped out of bed. He attacked her. He stabbed her multiple times. And then he cut her throat. Crystal had awakened during the attack on Katie. 
and he once he killed Chris once he killed killed Katie, he turned to Crystal, who had her hands by her neck. She told him she would be quiet, she wouldn't tell anybody, and just don't hurt her. And he ignored it. He came over, he made her move her hands, and then he slit her across the throat. Crystal played dead for several minutes. Uh, Cells ended up leaving the house through the back door, taking the screens that he had touched while trying to get into the house with him, uh, wiped the door, you know, the back door of fingerprints, and left. Once Crystal heard Cells leave, she thought he had killed the entire family. And so she gets out of bed, she gets out of the room, she gets out of the trailer, she goes down to a neighbor's house, and this is a trailer in a rural area, so she probably had to walk several hundred yards before she got to another dwelling. I don't know how close these trailers were. Right. She rang the doorbell, the owner of the house said, who is it? And she couldn't answer because her throat had been cut. Um, He turned on the light. He saw a little girl covered in blood, opened the door. She came in. His wife was taking care of her. He was calling 911. Crystal asked for paper and told them, you know, Harris is hurt. Uh, Tell him to hurry. Am I going to live? This is a 10-year-old child. Right. And the doctor said it's a miracle that she lived. The the emergency personnel in Del Rio, because I think she had to be airlifted to San Antonio. Mm-hmm. But the emergency personnel in Del Rio were did a you know a, a an awesome job of stabilizing her and keeping her alive. Right, absolutely. To get to an ER with I those mean, types if of injuries. Your throat is slashed. I'm pretty sure your chances are slim. Correct. Very that the doctors said that normally that type of injury is fatal because while it missed the carotid artery, it severed thyroid tendon. Uh, voice box and another pretty, you know, another pretty vital structure in the neck. Right. And Katie's throat was slit and, you know, she didn't survive. So, um, Crystal was able to give a description of self and was able to even assist in a composite drawing being made. And if you look at the show page, the composite drawing is dead on. And this is all with writing, all because she had to write. She could not speak. Mm -hmm. She was on an episode of 48 Hours about this case. Right. And, I mean... You know, she was in her teen, late teens, twenties by then, and it was mm-hmm. just no. She was in her she was in her twenties by then. 
because it was around the time I think around the time Cells was uh, yeah it was while while Cells was involved in post-conviction claims Um, Cells was identified and arrested on January 2nd 2000 Uh, he was it was for the death of Kayleen Harris and the attempted murder of Crystal Searles. Um, after he was arrested, he gave multiple confessions, not only to this crime, but to many others, to uh, Texas Rangers and Valverde County authorities. He also gave a videotaped walkthrough of the Harris house or trailer recounting everything he did. Right. So, Um, he's not even trying to fight this. No. And he apparently expressed some relief to uh, investigators that they'd finally caught him. But that may have been a manipulative attempt to try and gain sympathy. A manipulative attempt to try and gain sympathy. Um, Or even an attempt to try and say, look, I must be crazy because why would I do all these things? Only a crazy person would do this. So you've got to assume just based upon the – if you take your point of view on it, You've got to assume that he pretty much knew the writing was on the wall, it was death penalty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, I don't know because he committed murders in other states where. Okay. You know, he had committed a murder. I forgot on when I was talking about his prior murders in um, shortly after he killed uh, Mary Beatrice Perez, he killed a coworker with the carnival. Damn. Named Thomas Bros. So, I mean, he he was, you know, he committed murders in Kentucky. He committed murders in Missouri. He committed murders in Oklahoma. You know, he committed murders in death, other death penalty states. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his targets were children. And I forgot right. there's one other murder I forgot to mention and I I wasn't looking at my um I wasn't looking at my outline. In nineteen ninety seven he murdered a little boy by the name of Joel Kirkpatrick in Lawrence County, Illinois. In two thousand, Joel's mother, Julie Ray Kirkpatrick, was arrested and charged with Joel's murder. Part of that is probably because Joel died in their home. She claimed a stranger attacked them in the middle of the night, and there was not one shred of evidence of this stranger in their home because, as we know, Sells cleaned up after himself. Yeah. He was very careful about not leaving evidence behind. So... Three years after Joel's murder, when no stranger uh, 
was identified and no evidence pointed to a stranger in the home. Julie Ray Kirkpatrick was charged and tried and convicted of Joel Kirkpatrick's murder. Okay, so she wasn't the only or she she tried to use his story to well interestingly enough apparently Julie Ray Kirkpatrick was arrested and charged around the same time as Sells was arrested and charged in Texas. And it was only after Sells confessed to committing the murder in Lawrence County, Illinois, that Julie's attorneys learned of his confession. They were able to vet it and to corroborate it and bring it into her direct appeal. And so mm-hmm. her conviction was was vacated on direct appeal. Because okay. had they had the information about Tommy Lynn Sells, her, the result of her trial would have been different. And this is true because once she was released and rearrested and put on trial with Tommy Lynn Sells' confession, she was acquitted at her second trial. Okay. Now, again, the authorities didn't have any evidence in the house of a of a stranger. You know, all the evidence they had put Julie in the house and Joel in the house. Mm-hmm. Joel is dead, Julie's not. True. You know, it that's and they, and they they investigated for three years before they arrested Julie. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think that they they did try to corroborate Julie's claims, but they were never able to. And hmm. apparently, the the Lawrence County authorities didn't want to have anything to do with it. So. The Attorney General, the Illinois State Attorney's Office, was brought in, and kind of like the Attorney General coming in and investigating. And the Attorney General pursued the murder charge. So, but she, like I said, she was her conviction. She was convicted in two thousand two, I believe. Right. And her conviction was reversed. Or vacated in 2004. And then she was retried in 2006. Hmm, okay. So, um, and that's another interesting case. We might look at that case uh, in and of itself later on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but uh, during this time, Sells was confessing to a lot of murders and he was being taken on a lot of field trips by the Texas Rangers. So in his lead up to his trial, um, he did not spend a lot of time in jail. Hmm. So do you think maybe he may have been like, oh, this is a good way for me not to be sitting in jail, so I'm just going to start confessing this shit. I I think he did I think he did try the Henry Lee Lucas gambit mm-hmm. 
but some of the some of the confessions that he made were corroborated. Right. And they were able, like, you know, Mary Beatrice Perez, he ended up pleading guilty to murdering her in a plea bargain. Um, prior to his trial, he also pled guilty to the uh, attempted murder of Crystal Searle. Searles. Mm-hmm. So um, the pretrial proceedings, of course, the defense tried to get all of his communications out, uh, all of his confessions out, all of his statements, all of his uh, written and, and videotaped statements, and that was not successful. Um, during this time, against the advice of his attorney, Sells was also communicating with Diane Fanning, who wrote Through the Window, a book chronicling Sells' escapades. And then, for some reason, I guess perhaps because the communication with authorities was against advice of his counsel, Mm -hmm. the judge in his trial elected to exclude his multiple confessions to extraneous offenses, not only from the guilt-innocence phase of his trial, but also from the penalty phase. Well, what the hell? Which is, you know, I I don't have access to the trial court order to um, really explain what what cells asked the court to do and and why the court reasoned that it had to be done, and even the two hundred and eighty nine page federal memorandum opinion in his federal habeas claim does not really explain what the judge's reasoning was. It just finds that the judge left this out, and I don't understand why he did it. So um, that that's something odd that I've never heard of. You know, limiting it on the guilt-innocence phase, but in a punishment phase, all relevant evidence... Yeah, I mean... Should come I in. And, the death penalty and shit, but I mean that yeah. just that makes well, no sense. And it may the the other the other reasoning is that perhaps Sell's counsel argued that the confessions were still being investigated by authorities in the other jurisdictions as well as in Texas. And so they were uncorroborated. Mm-hmm. But I don't think even the even the charge he pled guilty to was brought in in his uh, in his punishment phase. Damn. And uh, why don't we take a break here? Let's go have a quick break. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Claim Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. We'll be right back after this.
Every Monday night, join Sean Castleberry, Daniel Williamson, and Brad Hicks as they bring you the Fuck It! We'll do a live show. Ladies and gentlemen, this show will bring you a unique perspective on everything that is pop culture and everything that is relevant in the news today. That is the Fuck It! We'll do a live show. Live, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, only on Talk Radio 49. Then it got a little crazy, it got a little hazy, and the cops said there's something wrong here. Oh, here, kid, kid. Mama's got some treats for On Wednesdays, join Cody Downs and Brad Hicks as they bring you No Country for Conspiracy, where they will delve into the realm of the unexplained and the unimaginable. That's right, it's No Country for Conspiracy right here on Talk Radio 49, once a month on Wednesdays. Michael Carnahan here with Talk Radio 49, and listening to your favorite podcast on the go has never, ever been any easier. If you're an iPhone user, to subscribe to us on iTunes, all you have to do is search out Talk Radio 490. Go ahead and throw us a subscribe. Also, if you'd like the F It We'll Do It live show and you want to watch on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe. F It We'll Do It live show. Hit that subscribe button and hit that notification bell, and you'll be notified whenever a new show pops up. Ladies and gentlemen, coming soon we will have new YouTube pages for Clear and Convincing and ASWF Aftermath as well. Once again, it's never, ever been any more simple to find Talk Radio 49 content at your leisure.
each and every Tuesday night. Join Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien live here on Talk Radio 49 for the Clear and Convincing Show. At 8 p.m. Central Standard Time on Tuesday nights, Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien look at the most infamous cases in this country's history. Not from the court of public opinion, but from the eyes of the court. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Clear and Convincing Show, live only on Talk Radio 49 and blogtalkradio.com. I'm okay. Okay, I think we're back. We're having some minor technical difficulties, so I may have lost Michael. Um, all right, so we're going to go into the trial, uh, which was held in September of 2000. The prosecution case, Crystal's testimony, uh, was probably the the key testimony against cells. Uh, in addition to his confessions and video of the crime scene walkthrough. And then there was also blood and fiber evidence linking cells to Katie's murder, linking cells to Katie, linking Katie to cells. Um, The defense was probably pretty hamstrung because of cells' various confessions. Uh, There's not a lot of there was an argument about sufficiency of the evidence as far as whether or not Katie was sexually assaulted or not, but there wasn't a lot of argument as to sufficiency of the evidence for Katie's murder or the fact that it was capital murder. Although, had they defeated the sexual assault or that found to have not have sufficient evidence, they might have gotten the murder, capital murder conviction reduced to a first-degree murder. Um, the verdict came in on September 20th, 2000. The um, jury was out for a very short time and came back and convicted cells of capital murder, and that was actually the 18th of September, 2000. On the 19th, the punishment phase began. The defense offered only the testimony of a psychologist named Dickerson uh, to try to provide some mitigating factors. They talked about uh, Sell's abuse and, and neglect during his childhood, his drug use alcohol abuse, um, but that did not really mitigate his responsibility or culpability for Katie's murder, which was so um, illustrated really by Sell's own walkthrough of the crime scene, telling officers what he did and how he did it. Uh, You just can't get past that. He showed no emotion, no remorse during that walkthrough. 
And this was a brutal murder of a 13-year-old child who had done nothing to Sells. Um, There was also the guilty plea for Crystal's attack. And so on September 20th, the jury sentenced Sells to death. Um, In Sells' direct appeal... He challenged some of the evidentiary ruling of the rulings of the court. Uh, the court refused to admit a videotape during Dr. Dickerson's testimony or during the state's sentencing testimony that showed administrative segregation procedures in one of the Texas Department of the our Department of Corrections units that the defense was arguing would basically render Tommy Sells not a future danger. Um, The problem with that was that the tape was not really relevant to Sells. It was a general, these are the procedures for administrative segregation, and administrative segregation is a punishment or a protection. Um. So it's not something every prisoner does not go into prison and immediately head into administrative segregation. And while the records of the county jail and cells prior incarceration showed, he could and did regulate his behavior while incarcerated. Again, it still doesn't alleviate his aggressive nature or impulsive nature or fact that he doesn't recognize consequences of his actions and, you know, tends to act when he's angry or, or whatever. So um, then there was a challenge to jurors who were not challenges for cause of jurors to jurors who were a little waffly during questioning by the defense. Um, Sells challenged him for cause and that was denied by the trial court so he had to use peremptory challenges to get those jurors off the jury Um, but again those he did not meet the requirements basically to show that the judge did not was an error not granting those challenges for cause Uh, in 2003 Sell's conviction and sentence were both affirmed by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. While his direct appeal was pending, he did file a first writ uh, for a state post-conviction with the court. And that, once his direct appeal was concluded, he began pursuing that. Um he raised essentially the same claims related to his the jury charges, claims related to the uh, failure of the court to grant his cause challenges, uh, the failure to admit the videotape, and a few other issues. That was denied by the trial court, or relief, it, the trial court recommended relief be denied. And so the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed that decision. Sells filed a federal habeas writ 
making the same allegations he had in his state writ. And then around 2006, he decided to add a an Atkins claim, which basically alleges that because he is mentally retarded, he cannot be executed. Um, that was based on a Supreme Court case, uh, Atkins, I think it was versus South Carolina, where the Supreme Court held that the execution of persons who were mentally retarded um, was against the Constitution or was a violation of... Lisa, I apologize. I wanted to let you know I'm back here. Luckily, the oh, good. back up, and I apologize to our listeners for uh, the technical difficulties there in the meantime. Yes, because I am... Um, I, I hate when I have to just talk, talk, talk. <laughs> so, yeah, well, so Atkins versus – Screw up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's okay. You need a new router. Tell Xfinity that. <laughs> oh, yeah, but Xfinity? Yeah, Comcast is uh, sucking it up big time here recently. But I have a feeling it may have to do with me working from home. Oh, you may be using up your bandwidth? Possibly. Ah, okay. Yeah, that'll do it. Um, So, okay, where was I? So his second, uh, he made the Atkins claim, which is Atkins versus Virginia, which was decided in 2002 while his direct appeal was pending. And prior to his return to the trial court on his first state post-conviction writ. Uh, That writ was dismissed as an abuse of the writ because at the time of his first state post-conviction claim, Atkins was available then. And he also filed a third writ in the state court alleging a multitude of ineffective assistance to counsel claims basically related to the failure of his counsel to present uh, mitigation testimony related to abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, drug abuse, etc. While the while cells went back to state court, his federal habeas claims were held in abeyance, which means the federal court did not act on them. Um, Finally, in about 2010, uh, and and Sells, during the, the third writ, was dismissed as well as an abuse of the writ. He returned to federal court. He amended his federal habeas writ to include all these other claims. And in 2010, the state filed a response. And during that time and during this process, Sells filed a multitude of records, affidavits, unsworn declarations, and other evidence to support his various claims 
that had never been presented to the state courts. And so after reviewing it, and this was voluminous, I mean, I looked at the federal docket, and as you can see, when you have a 289-page memorandum opinion analyzing and denying the claims, there's a lot of documents and a lot of documentation behind that. So uh, in 2012, the federal district court denied um, Sells' federal habeas claims and the that decision was affirmed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. Okay. In 2013. In January of 2014, the judge in Valverde County set Sells' execution date for April 3rd, 2014. And it was after that that Sells filed a lethal injection challenge. Basically, when the the pharmacy manufacturing firms withdrew and decided not to provide execution drugs to states with the death penalty, states right. went to compounding pharmacies. And at some point, the compounding pharmacy normally used by Texas, the identity of that compounding pharmacy was public, and the backlash from that led to that compounding pharmacy withdrawing its agreement to provide anything to the Texas Department of Corrections or Department of Criminal Justice. Because the compounding pharmacy received death threats. So Texas went to another compounding pharmacy and then did not disclose the identity of the compounding pharmacy. There were federal court challenges and state court challenges by cells and other inmates to attempt to force Texas to identify the compounding pharmacy. And essentially, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal found that the the, uh, state did not have to do that. Yeah, I can imagine. What, What right do you have to know where the drugs are coming from, honestly? Right. And they, you know, they they were saying they needed to know because they needed to have the drugs tested to make sure that they weren't going to suffer, you know, pain and and et cetera during the executions. But they didn't make their case for, you know, they, they was all speculation of whether or not. Um, they would suffer any harm during the course of their execution. Okay. 
And I don't think any inmate in Texas has ever successfully crafted a civil rights claim that would overrule the prior opinions otherwise. Right, right. So um, they essentially... And the U.S. Supreme Court, he went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they uh, declined to review the case. So his execution went forward on April 3rd, 2014. He had no final words. Um, He expressed no remorse. Was this before or after the last meal was done away with? That was after the last meal was done away with because um, he uh, – that was in 2011 that uh, the – Okay, so he didn't get anything special. The guy from Jasper County who dragged right. the gentleman to death. It wasn't King, but I can't remember the guy's name. And I, at this moment, I, I, mean, I can't remember the victim's name. And I, I, I know who you're talking about, though. Horrible, we but I can't at this moment. James Bird. James Bird. James Bird. His name was James Bird. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was after. Um, after James Bird's murder ordered this huge meal and then refused to touch it. So Right. He ordered some crazy stuff too, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah. I I remember. Um yeah, he ordered a huge meal and ended up and then actually I mean literally ordered this huge meal and refused to touch it. That was when Texas said, okay, we're going to do away with this. It was, you know, we were trying to be nice, but somebody ruined it. You know, if that guy, if that guy wasn't dead, he probably wouldn't be too popular. Well, yeah, but you know, he he that was his last FU. Maybe he didn't like the other guys on death row. Maybe. So. And so that is pretty much that's uh that's Tommy Lynn Sells. Damn, so I missed a majority of it when my internet went down. You missed a lot. I talked about the trial and the direct appeal. And I think you came back when I was uh, trying to get yeah, through the we state and federal post-conviction. <laughs> so, sorry. You can listen in the archives. Or we can always listen on YouTube. Don't forget to hit That's that. That's right. <laughs> So, all right, so that is Tommy Lynn Sells. 
Okay. In a nutshell. Well, definitely, Lisa, uh, like I said, I mean, the biggest thing I come out of this with is, man, did uh, the guy in Deer Lodge watch this dude's uh, M.O. and just decide to model Ed Edwards after it or what have you? Because the correlation is crazy to me, but... Well, unfortunately, I think it's possible to have multiple sociopathic personalities uh, operating. Right, at the same time. At any one time. And, you know, Sells, like I said, his, his MO and his his motive varied. So the crimes weren't linked. He, even where he had some connection to the victims he usually left town okay and he was very careful about not leaving any evidence behind that would have identified him now Lisa I'm gonna uh, draw another correlation to old Ed Edwards uh, because it sounds like uh, old Tommy Lynn there was um, also he was presented as an alternate suspect for West Memphis 3 Yes, at one time, um, back in the 2000s, around the time he had been arrested and was being tried, and while his uh, appeals were going on, because he was, uh, he did work in carnivals, and there was Esperanza Bonanza, but I think that that was the weekend after the murders, not the weekend before. Oh. And even then, you know, the the murders were on Wednesday in a neighborhood. However, we know that Sells was in May of 1992, a year before Chris, Michael, and Steve were murdered. Sells raped and beat and stabbed Miss Witherspoon in Charleston, West Virginia. And he was arrested shortly after that. He didn't leave Charleston. He stayed there. He was arrested within, I think, a couple of weeks, as I recall. He was held in jail. And in June of 1993, a month after, a little bit more than a month after, Chris, Michael, and Steve were murdered, he pled guilty or was convicted, rather, of malicious wounding and sentenced to time in prison in West Virginia. So he was not, he could not have been in Arkansas on May 5th, 1993. There's no way that he could have been in Arkansas. He was not released on bond. He was held in jail from the time of his arrest. Uh, in fact, he, uh, typical of his M.O., he called people he had ingratiated himself with after his arrest and tried to get them to help him, but they were not amenable to doing so. Absolutely. So while he was proposed by someone as an alternate suspect, the timeline just doesn't work because he couldn't have been 
in Arkansas because he was in custody in Virginia, in West Virginia. Because if he'd been released on, on bail from the, these charges in West Virginia, he just would have never gone back to West Virginia. Right. And he well, would have had no I mean, problem becoming a fugitive. I will say this. I mean, it definitely it definitely seems plausible, not from a timeline perspective, but from his M.O., it definitely <clears> seems <throat> plausible. Well, except that I think that in his – the only case we know of with multiple victims are a parent and child or parents and a child, and then he takes the parents out and goes after the kids. In this case, this would have been three young children that he would have had to control. Yeah, but – and his target of choice when it was when it was sexual was young female mm-hmm. not male true. true you know I, I don't I think Joel Kirkpatrick and Peter Dardine were simply killed to eliminate them as potential witnesses mm-hmm. well and that's what I was about to get to I mean I'm not saying you know if Maybe he targeted one of them. What I was saying was, I mean, young kids. It, that's what yeah. I meant by kind of. It kind of matched, but I mean, to say that but, just because it was three of them, I, I don't necessarily think that's as big a deal. Hell, he could have taken two of them well, out just because they were witnesses. You know what I'm saying? Because they were together. But again, Michael, you're when you're looking at the cases where he did target the young children alone. It was a single child, not multiple children. True. And, you know, he's a stranger. If one of the kids respected him or was afraid of him, the other two not, wouldn't necessarily have done so. And they were on, he would have been on their territory. So they would have known how to get away fast. Good point. And one, one could have escaped. And there wouldn't have been a damn thing Sales could do about it because he only got two legs and two arms. Well, all I'm saying is I still want to know who the hell Mr. Bojangles is. He was just a bum that got in a fight with another bum. I know. I'm just giving you hell. Behind the the Bojangles chicken restaurant along the train track. He was probably a bum riding the train, going along the train track, which is over a mile from the crime scene. It's not right out the door as Jason Baldwin's claims. Mm-hmm. So but we'll talk about that more on May fifth. Yes, ma'am. So well that's that's Tommy Lynn Selch sells in a nutshell. Like I said, definitely the uh definitely had quite a uh Quite a accomplished list. Not saying that's a good thing, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, definitely yeah. was uh, had a body count to him. Correct. He he most certainly had that. All right. Were you ready to put a bow on her? Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Cornahan. 
If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. On Thursday, April 23rd, 2020, we'll upload a bonus episode, which is an interview Michael and I did with Gregory Corner, a former boyfriend of Stacy Seitz. Greg and Stacy met in the spring of 1992 and were together until July of 1992. Michael and I talked to Greg about his life, his relationship with Stacy, and learned about Stacy from someone who knew her well. We'll return to our regular schedule on Tuesday, April 28, 2020, at 8 p.m. Central, with Episode 10, Social Isolation and Horse Racing. We'll be joined by Mr. Michael Amo and Dr. Brian Langlois of Thoroughfan, and we'll pick up where we left off in our second interview and talk about the work Mr. Amo and Dr. Langlois are doing in their communities to enrich the lives of all creatures great and small. We'll also talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the horse racing industry. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.